from Matthew 27. So I want us to, today to think collectively about the cross. We're going to show in, in the little bit of scripture we're going to read in a minute the attitudes that crucified Jesus. Very first verse, Matthew 27, verse 1. When that morning had come, all the chief priests and elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. Think about it. The dirtiest deed that was ever done was the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. The greatest tragedy, tra tragedy ever enacted was Calvary. But listen closely. Yet how dirty and tragic as it was, it, was all, it had been forever planned and prophesied by Almighty God himself. I want us to think about that this morning. And it was for our redemption. That's the reason it was there, for our redemption. So what a day that was on Golgotha when the Son of Man hung on a cross. You know, the, the cross here behind me sort of almost gives a, a beautiful picture, a serene picture of the cross. But I'm going to paint with a different brush today. Because when the darkness fell, if you know the story of the crucifixion, when the darkness was veiled, the sun from shining, when darkness fell at such a level that the sun went dark, when the demons were gleeing with, with praise as they were seeing the Son of Man hanging on a cross, the earth quaked, the earth shook, rocked and reeled when Jesus died on the cross. No one has ever died in that manner since or before. It is a one-time, unrepeatable event that has never happened again. So the, the difference, if you will, of, of other people that had died on the cross. Yeah, I was talking about this with, with my wife a little bit earlier, and I said, you know, I can't, I can't come up with another crucifixion other, you know, than, than the complete crucifixion of, of Jesus between two thieves that is recorded for us in the Bible. But I want us to make sure we understand that was not the first. These men were crafted in what they did in the form of crucifixion. It was invented by the Romans. It was something that was meant to instill fear as a deterrent from doing wrong, okay? It wasn't life in prison with food and TV and education. It wasn't that. So I want us to think about Calvary. I want us to make sure we understand the beauty of the cross is also the shame, the heartache, the utter despair of Jesus, the blackness of midnight within the sun of God's heart for the atoning death that we so enjoy as believers. Think about the anticipation of the cross. And Jesus was literally born in the shadow of the cross. Now what I mean by that is 
fully God and fully man, Jesus, the God-man. He was not completely bound by the world like we are. In other words, there are people that would give their right arm to know the future, especially in the realm of stock markets and investing and, and just life in general. They would give anything to know how next week or next year or tomorrow or whatever, how it would be. But think about it. For God in the flesh, for Jesus himself, he was literally born because he told the disciples over and over again, it's recorded for us in Scripture, that he said, they'll destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Right? So Jesus literally was born on earth through a virgin birth in the shadow of a cross. Jesus knew he was going to die. He said that he was going to die over and over again. That's sort of what he tried to make sure he instilled upon his core group, his disciples and those around about what was going to happen, the events that were yet followed that none of them understood. But think about it, even as Joseph, Joseph, the, the earthly father the, of Jesus, Jesus might have been working growing up in, the, in his father's carpentry shop, and Jesus was known as a carpenter. So that assumption is true that he worked in the carpentry shop growing up and maybe as he got older. How much of a reminder do you think it could be as he worked with wood and boulders and lumber and nails, do you think it reminded him of what was to come? Think about maybe outside of the carpenter shop, there might have been around somewhere some rose bushes or something with thorns on it that might have reminded him that one day I'm going to have a crown of thorns placed on my head and then driven into my skull with, with clubs. Think about it. Do you want to live in the shadow of your demise? Jesus did. He lived in the shadow of the cross. The psalmist even tells us one of the prophetic psalms, this is Psalm 88, this first part of verse 15 says this, I am afflicted and ready to die from my youth up. You know, as I said before, people wish they knew the future. You ought to thank God you don't know the future. Because I want to ask a scenario. Suppose for an instant that you did. You knew collectively and individually that in a year and a half, maybe a grandchild, maybe a child, maybe a spouse, maybe a loved one of some form is going to die in an automobile crash. No automobile crash. There is no if, and, or buts about. Let's say you knew that, and it's going to be a year and a half from today. What would you do? I'm not talking about someone you could care less. I'm talking about a loved one at some level, be it a, a child, a grandchild, a spouse, a parent, whatever it is, someone that you loved in a year and a half is going to die. And you're powerless to change it. But you know it's going to happen. Jesus lived his life on earth knowing that he would die on the cross. 
Think about the suffering of Gethsemane. Now, to be perfectly blunt, few things move me at the level that this one verse, and it's Matthew 26, 39. When Jesus was in, he pleaded with the Father. He said, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Father, if it be possible, and he's not talking about taking a, a, a cup and taking it around and say, I'll pass this time. He's talking about, Father, if it be possible, let's don't do the cross. Let's don't do it. That's what let this cup pass from me means. Let's don't do the cross. Can you imagine, I, I, I just, every time I do, it just rips me apart to think of what he had to know about what I've done, just me, nobody, just me. What he had to know about me and what I have done through the years and what I may continue to do, Lord only knows. But what I did, he went to the cross for me, knowing all that, and for you as well, knowing everything you've been through. Knowing all the sin you have in your past that you know of, and again, all that stuff you don't know you've done, you're going to do in the future. So don't let the idea that Calvary was some kind of charade, that Jesus walked up there like some kind of Superman and just swagged up and said, all right, boys, it's time. No. That's not what the Bible tells us, and that's what makes this such a story of love. Because he loved me enough to go anyway. Does it offend you if I say Jesus shrank back from the cross? Does that offend you? It offends a lot of people. They'll say, no, he went boldly. No, he did. He literally, when he said, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me is a shrink back saying, you know, let's rethink this thing. The God of all creation shrunk back and said, I'm not sure I want to do this. That's love, y'all. He loved us so much that he'll say in the next verses, but not my will, but thy will be done. He went forward to the cross anyway. It's a story of love that we don't know on earth. It's a story of love. Don't, so don't let it offend you. He didn't want to die like that. But when you think about it in the correct context, it makes you love him even more. It wasn't necessarily the physical death as much, and I've and I got to be careful here. I don't want to downplay that by any stretch. But it was the sin. Notice, my sin, your sin, our sin was upon him when he was on the cross. We, we tend to not be able to think about that in holistic terms as it should be. Jesus is... is for a point in time on the cross in an infinite piece of history, in a finite, excuse me, a finite piece of history. But his death reached, his redemption death went backwards in time to the beginning, and it will go forward even before us until he comes back in the end when he makes it anew. Think about it this way. He suffered in Gethsemane, the Bible tells us, that it was so physical, the state of, that Jesus was in physically and mentally, 
that the Bible tells us that he literally sweat blood. Blood came out of his pores instead of sweat. But thank God he prayed, not my will, but thine be done. Think about the indecencies that Jesus suffered as, a, as the Bible says, scourged him on the cross. Few men, well, they scourged him before he got on the cross as they scourged him. Few men really survived the scourging. Think about it. They stripped him. There was something like what we would consider a cat of nine tails, if you've heard that. It's a whip with fragments of bone and metal and glass or whatever they could put on the end of it that would cut skin. And they whipped him with it. These men were so skilled. That's what I'm saying. They didn't just make this up for Jesus. This was something that the Romans had perfected to the point that their problems were pretty slim. They didn't have a lot of problems with people wanting to convince, to want to do things that would be their judgment of the cross. It's a good deterrent. But these men that executed the judgment and the cross knew through practice and through everything how to put someone within inches of their life with the scourging, what, what the Bible referred to as scourging. The shock, the blood loss, the pain had to be incredible on a physical standpoint. Think about they put on that crown, that long spikes of a crown on his head, then they... When they, when, when they said later they smote him with clubs, that means they beat him, so they beat it on his head even deeper. And y'all, they even, if, if you read it, they even reached up and snatched his beard out by the roots. He had a beard. Boom, boom, boom. They actually pulled him out in clumps. The prophet Isaiah told us it would happen in Isaiah 52, 14. He says, you cannot tell that his vintage, his, his look was even human. That's Jesus on the cross. The artists have been kind throughout the centuries painting a very serene and, and loving Jesus on the cross. With some clothes on too, by the way. But that's not how it happened. They stripped him from his clothing. They humiliated him. They stripped him. Jesus was hanging naked on the cross. No loincloths like you see in everything else. And we're not going to depict nothing like that in the play. Don't worry. We're not going that far. But the crucifixion was in a hill called Golgotha, the Son of Man, is stretched out on the cross. Think about the when they nailed his hands to the cross. They nailed his palms as he showed Thomas later on. They would nail his feet together on the cross, sort of like this on top of one another. Those nail, those searing nails as they went in, 
just sent more and more pain to Jesus. They knew how to strike those those different nerves within the hands and the feet. If you know anything about the anatomy, there's a lot of bones and stuff to make these things do this. There's lots of stuff that goes on under the skin. And to make you wiggle your toes, you can't see that I got shoes on. But there's lots of things that has to happen for that to happen and to drive. And they didn't have like a little tin penny nail. I'm talking spikes. I'm talking stuff that makes holes. To hold up a human, it's got to be bigger than that. They knew how to send the most pain, the most physical pain. as could. Every nerve in his arms and in his feet were just like channels sending pain to his mind. Think about this. There were even probably flies in his wounds as he hung up there on the cross. And as his face was so bloody, he suffered upon the cross. But even deeper than the physical part, the shame, the mockery, is the fact that all the Christians of the day departed. They all ran and hid. If you've ever been alone, listen to me, if you've ever felt like you were alone, Jesus knows what being alone is like. The disciples forsaked him. The crowd was jeering him on. The demons in hell were, 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 were cheering him on to die, saying, yes, yes, crucify him, crucify him, mock him, everything else. But God the Father did something even worse with what does the Bible say. He turned his back. On Jesus. And he says, he doesn't say, my father, why have you forsaken me? What does he say? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At that point in time, the sins, the redemption story was, was, was upon Jesus. All the stuff that, that I've done, that, that we've done collectively in our lives, plus a lot more were on his mind as he was on the cross, and, and God the Father says, can't look on that. And he became sin for us. The Holy One of God that was sinless, without sin, under a mockery of a trial, under a uh, hung jury, if you will, or, or a paid-off jury, if you will, of people, a mock trial, a man without sin became the sins of the world. And just as God the Father turned His back on Jesus, He is that righteous on sin for everyone. The God of the media nowadays is, He'll forgive anything. He, but, but if you just look at the cross, God cannot look upon sin. He became the sin bearer. Do you think, think about this for a minute. You think if there was ever a time that God thought about the prayer Jesus had sent up, about if there's any way, let's don't do this thing, let this cup pass from me, you would think, 
I mean, come on, guys. You, 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 know, you know what you do for your kids. You would think that if you had to turn your back on your child because something had gone and you didn't want to be a part of it and you were trying to prove a point, you would give in. You would say, you turn back around and say, it's okay. I love you. Jesus says, I can't. God the Father says, I can't look upon sin. At that point, Jesus became the sin of the world. He became sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. The Bible says, and Paul told the church at Rome, in Romans chapter 8, 1 verse just 32, he says, Spared not his own son, but offered him up freely. Freely. Think about that. Jesus on the cross suffered in finite period of time what would suffer, what we would suffer in an infinite amount of time in hell. Because he being infinite, think about it, suffered in a finite way that we being finite could get out of that suffering in the infinite way if we trust him. If you think about it, the, the sin of the world was compressed. Because you had to get, you got the, the sin of the world, all the past, and then all the stuff he didn't, or, or we don't, he didn't know going forward per se, uh, hadn't happened yet. In other words, us and everything between here and there, and then all the stuff we don't know nothing about in the future, all that sin comes compressed on him at one time on the cross. That's called the sin of the world was distilled or put on Jesus. Think about it in this way. I'll let one writer say this. He said the eternities. He said the eternities were compressed upon Jesus. So never take the cross lightly. Never be, never be blasé about redemption whatsoever, please. Never cease to love him, never cease to praise him, and never be ashamed of him. Nobody has ever loved you like Jesus does. Not even your best spouse or your parents or nothing. So don't let anybody put you to shame about your faith. Always be bold in your faith. March forward. So they put him to death, but now who crucified Jesus? Let's think about that for a minute. You say, well, maybe people have said in the past, well, the Roman soldiers, they crafted and perfected the crucifixion. They crucified him. That's one way of thinking about it. Some may say Pilate did, right? Pilate crucified Jesus. They allowed him to, he allowed them to do it, right? You may say, well, the Jews crucified him. They hounded Pilate and put him to death. That's what we've been through the last three or four Sundays. But the truth of the matter is, we all crucified Jesus. He died for our sin. So we're going to look at probably just a couple of these attitudes today, and we'll get the rest of them next week. But I want you to look in this and see if this applies to you in any way. I pray some of this will resonate with some of us. It has to, because we're human. 
But we're going to look at those who crucified our Lord Jesus, and we're going to see hope. I think we're going to see ourselves in it too. I want to mention just a few of them. The first one is self-righteousness. That's just in the first two verses of Matthew 27. Again, let me read the rest of it. I'll read it again. When the morning had come, all the chief priests and elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. That's verse 1. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. So we have the chief priests, the elders, the religious leaders, scribes, Pharisees, people like that. They crucified Jesus. I want to just say as a side note, what this world needs is Jesus. We don't need religion because religion is what crucified Jesus. I just said, the scribes, the Pharisees, and the elders, that was the religious institution of the day. So religion by itself is one of the cruelest things that's ever been. The world needs Jesus. There's a difference, too. The word Christianity has Christ at the beginning. That's what Christianity is different from any of the other religions. It, and Christianity at its core is a vital relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a relationship. Have you ever thought what it would be like to have a church full of Pharisees at Briar Branch? Have you ever thought about that? They would be here every Sunday. They would tithe. They would work in the church. They'd be hard to, to outdo in the church. The religious folks. But you think they're going to heaven? No. Nope. It was the religious crowd again that crucified Jesus. Religion at its core is self-righteous. You don't do that, I do this, and we're all good. That's, that's being self-righteous. The second one is hypocrisy. Let me read a few more verses, verses 3 through 5, still in Matthew 27. We'll talk about Judas. Then Judas, when he had betrayed him, when he saw that he, had, that he was condemned, repented himself and brought again the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, the religious folks, saying, I have sinned and that I have betrayed innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? See thou to that. And he cast, as the Bible says, and he cast down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hung himself. Judas Iscariot was a first-class hypocrite. A hypocrite. You ever heard people say that I don't want to attend whatever church it is because there's a bunch of hypocrites there? You ever heard that? I hadn't necessarily heard that about this church, but through my years when I would talk to people about not going to church, they would always, if you talk to them long enough, they would somehow or another wind up at church X, whatever it was they used to be, was full of hypocrites. And they didn't want to go. Think about it. Judas was a hypocrite, right? But none of the rest of the apostles were hypocrites, right? There's always been hypocrites. There's hypocrites even today. I'd rather spend my years with a few hypocrites in a church than to spend it with the hypocrites in hell. 
Think about that. So, so not going to a church that has some hypocrites in it is not a good excuse because Jesus had his ministry with Judas the whole time. Judas was keep, the keeper of the money. He was a trusted guy in the eyes of everyone around. So personally, I'm not going to let any hypocrite keep me out of church. Judas at his core was a covetous man. And think about what did he do? He loved silver more than he loved Jesus. That's being a hypocrite. Say, I love Jesus, but he bought him or paid for it or portrayed him for 30 pieces of silver, the cost of a slave. Verse, tells, uh, verse 5 of this tells us that the sin destroyed him. He, 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 he come to the realization that he was innocent. He tried to redo the verdict. He said, you know, I've portrayed innocent blood. And they said, I don't care. You know, the, the deed's been done. The deed's in, in motion. It's unstoppable now. And Judas felt so twisted about it, he hung himself. That's a hypocrite. He never repented. He hung himself. He cast down, the Bible tells us, the pieces of silver in the temple, departed and went and hung himself. But you know, that's only part of the story. If you go to Acts 1, verse 18, it sort of tells us what happened. It says, Now this man purchased a field with the reward of his iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst asunder in the midst, and all his bowels gushed out. Judas was a hypocrite. In his mind, he knew the truth. He verbally said one thing, and in the despair of the two, he killed himself, yet not repentive. Judas was a hypocrite. And this is, this is scary, but I'm going to say it anyway. There could be some hypocrites here. There could be. Only you know if you've been saved. But the true hypocrite will know there's something just not right. So I would say to that hypocrite, when are you going to start, stop playing? Because if you don't quit playing that game, that hypocritical game, you're going to join Judas in hell. That's enough. We, we, we'll just do two today. We looked at self-righteousness and hypocrisy. Next Sunday, we'll, we'll finish that up and we'll have communion and we'll observe the Lord's Supper. And I want it to be in our hearts and minds this week as we examine ourselves to make sure we don't have a self-righteous or hypocritical heart because I want to ask this question. Does the attitudes of self-righteousness and hypocrisy resonate with any of you today in your life? Are you just religious or are you a child of God? There is a difference. Let's decide today as we pray before we sing to make sure we give our attitudes a checkup before we leave here because it's easy to get self-righteous and to be a hypocrite.
It's too easy not to make sure we take a pause on these two alone and think a moment about them. Because I know, and I hope you're honest with yourself, they weigh heavy on my heart. I don't want to be that person that's a hypocrite. I pray by God's grace I'll never be that person that is self-righteous. But if you're honest with yourself, there's like a hairline trigger to get to either one of them if you don't watch it in today's society. It doesn't take much. But I want us to think about that. Let's decide today to give our attitudes a check and a check up. Let's pray. Dear God, as we're here today, Lord, we know that you are God and above you there is no other. Lord, my prayer and my plight in life is to preach your word. Lord, to tell the greatest story ever that we all can be together in heaven. Lord, I pray if there's one within the sound of my voice that resonates that self-righteousness or maybe hypocrisy resonates in their soul, Lord, I pray that Today could be that day that they would snuff that out or that they would come to the saving knowledge of grace before it's everlastingly too late. Lord, I know when, when we as your church get a correct understanding of where we are in relationship to you, the, the hope we have because of you and only you, Lord, it will make us a, a people of humility. Lord, it will make us a people of loving kindness. Lord, I just pray that for us today as a church and collectively and individually. Lord, when we go out next week and whatever we need to be doing, when we do what we do during the week, Lord, that, that your light would just emanate from us so much that people have to wear sunshades around us and want to know what is it that's different about us. And Lord, let us walk in that newness of life that your spirit can give us and then shine your light for others to see so they can come to that saving knowledge of grace. Lord, we love you. Lord, we praise you. And we said all this in the precious name of Jesus, I pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Please stand.